Welcome. You're listening to the Human Rights Podcast, run by the Irish Centre for Human Rights at the National University of Ireland, Galway. My name is Poonam Shoker, and on today's episode, we will be discussing the human rights implications of the United Kingdom's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Here with me to speak about this on their own behalf is Mr. Adam Wagner, a practising barrister at Doughty Street Chambers, visiting professor at Goldsmiths University, and specialist advisor to the UK Parliament's COVID-19 Human Rights Inquiry. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Wagner. Good morning. So to start us off, could you please describe to us your role and experiences as a special advisor to the UK Parliament's COVID-19 Human Rights Inquiry? Yeah, um, I've been working with the Joint Committee on Human Rights um, since March, um, I think, or early April of last year. Um, they've been running a inquiry into the human rights implications of the COVID-19 crisis and particularly the government's response since then. There have been three reports so far. Um, there's a fourth coming on the effects of um, what we call long lockdown um, in the coming weeks um, and, and some evidence sessions. And I've been working um, with the committee on and off um, throughout that period to try and in, in fairly pretty much in real time to identify key human rights issues um, of which there have been many and try and advise um, the government or you know critique the government in terms of its response. Would you say that the government has been cooperative in providing information to the human rights inquiry responses? Yeah I mean I, I, I'm not sure how much I can speak to that because I don't um, I'm not directly involved with the administration and with making sure that they get all the information they need. The government have replied to the main report that the committee produced in the autumn. The government did reply um, early in January of this year. Um, it was a pretty, you know, in my opinion, it was a pretty vague and you know, sort of batting off kind of reply, but it was a substantive reply. Um, they have engaged, for example, when the committee released a report on the potential privacy implications of the contact tracing app, the government did um, engage and in fact they eventually ditched the model that they were going to try for, which was um, which was seen as quite risky for privacy and, and went for a different model. But I don't know whether that's because of what the committee said or, ge or generally sort of practical problems with the app. What is your view on the overall pandemic response? Would you say greater scrutiny is required regarding the way in which lockdown has been imposed? I mean, that's a really big question. Um, I, I, in honesty, I don't think we can really fundamentally or finally assess what should have been done um, and what was done um, until a bit down the line. Um, I think we need really good comparative data from other countries, other comparative countries to understand what we did right, what we didn't do right. I know that the, the sort of popular narrative is that the, the UK, because the UK has such an enormous per capita death rate, that they must have done something wrong. There was an, a, a sort of editorial in the, in the Times about it, in making that point, I think, last week. Um, but you know, I, I, it, I think it's a very open question. I think there's, the lockdown itself has raised the most fundamental issues in terms of rights protection, but really from lots of different directions. You know, on, on one view, the lockdown itself is such a severe interference with liberty, with individual liberty, that it had to um, 
comply with the sort of gold standard of democratic accountability. And I think one of the one of the criticisms I've made of the way the government has done this is they've basically bypassed parliament by using emergency laws throughout um, an emergency procedure, which allowed them to put in place draconian criminal laws without any parliamentary scrutiny until a month later, by which time usually they've, they've you know, moved on to a different law, which has been brought in without parliamentary scrutiny. Um, there's been, I, I've counted 66 different instances, so about two a week, um, of these kind of um, emergency laws creating lockdown criminal offences. So I think the way things have been done has been very problematic. Um, you know, you can make a wider argument as to whether the lockdown was too was was too strict, or maybe not strict enough, um, maybe not quick enough. Um, and I think there's some very interesting rights arguments about if you're going to do a lockdown and it's going to protect life, which is one of the fundamental protections in the Human Rights Convention, you have to do it right um, because you are also creating a lot of collateral damage by preventing people going about their family and private lives, making people lose their businesses, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I've been thinking about this sort of slightly paradoxical question of whether the if the lockdown was too late and too loose, whether that may not survive a kind of human rights analysis because ultimately you don't get much bang for your buck from the lockdown because it's basically you know that you've let the virus run free lots of people are dying anyway and therefore the lockdown becomes a bit of a um a dead letter um but so paradoxically you could argue that a more severe and earlier lockdown would have been um better from a human rights perspective because at least it would have worked in its primary aim which is preventing deaths and, uh, and I'm just not sure whether it has. Um, but you could argue also that if there hadn't have been lockdowns, even if they were a bit late, you would be looking at, instead of 100,000 deaths, maybe 200,000, 300,000, even 500,000 deaths. So uh, it's extremely complicated and difficult um, impacts on you know, children, the right to education, the right to family life, the right to religion, the right to protest. It's, it's a whole, it's gonna take years to figure out exactly what happened and, and whether it was the right or the wrong thing. As you've mentioned, many of our rights have been impacted through the lockdown. Specifically for your Twitter, you have been quite focused on the right to protest. And I wanted to ask you, in what ways has the right to protest been impacted by the lockdown? I think the way that protest has been handled, and the right to protest has been very troubling um, during this pandemic. And I think that potentially reflects this sort of, you know, only partially democratic way that these laws have been brought in um, because protest the way that the UK law has worked is that you can only gather um, if you have one of a number of um, listed reasons um, or some other reasonable excuse um, the reasonable excuse brings comes into the gatherings rules through a defense to any any potential offenses so you can't enforce it um, you can't enforce um, the rules if there if there is a defence, but the protests um, were brought in as a potential reason for gathering, a potential lawful reason for gathering explicitly for a few weeks in the autumn, but then they were removed, it was removed again during this current lockdown and during tier four, and I think that is really troubling, I think that the, the way the police have interpreted it during this lockdown is that protest is not permitted, um, and I'm not sure that that's right, I think that 
unless protest is explicitly banned, and I think it has to be would have to be banned by Parliament, probably by primary legislation, um, it's permitted because at the moment it's it's not explicitly banned. So I'm very worried that this kind of um, democratic safety valve which we have, which is the right to protest, has been has been fastened shut, um, and that's particularly troubling in a time of such social upheaval and concerns. So yeah, I I think that's been one of the real um, human rights failings of the way this um, the lockdown has been managed. It almost comes across as if the levels of enforcement by police on gathering comes down to a bit of a postcode lottery. Would you say that the guidance put in place regarding exceptions to gatherings has been vaguely written, so has in effect caused an inconsistent application of the rules by the police, depending on which region you're in? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the big problems with the lockdown rules um, is they're pretty vague. And and, and as, a, as I understand it, this isn't a UK specific problem. This has been a problem for policing in many jurisdictions around the world with coronavirus restrictions. I mean, these are this is a sort of, you know, experiment in, in effect, you, restricting people's lives and this micromanaging people's social interactions and using the criminal law. I don't think it's ever been done before in this way, um, to particularly to control the virus. I mean, I've looked into the history of lockdowns and, um, you know, and, and well, virus controlling measures, and there have been you know, lots of instances of travel bans, um, you know, closing schools, ga banning gatherings, that sort of thing, going back to the Black, pay Black Death in the Middle Ages. But I don't think there have been widespread lockdowns of this kind with this very, very micromanagey kind of approach. Um, and so something like the right to protest, which should be protected very, very strongly and facilitated, has instead, as you said, come down probably to a bit of a postcode lottery because some police have been actively enforcing it and some police haven't. But I think actually during this lockdown, it's become pretty universal that the police just aren't allowing protest, which if you think about it in a democracy is, is really um, quite wrong. Could it be argued that if exceptions for gatherings were more detailed, this would then make enforcement regarding gatherings more uniform and clearer for the police? And also as a result, set clearer boundaries for the public to scrutinize police action when imposing such measures? There's a real conceptual problem here, which is that you, the more you define these restrictions, um, doesn't necessarily mean that they're easier to enforce. Um, so more detail doesn't mean easier enforcement. And the example from these regulations is we've gone, the original lockdown regulations in, the, in England were 11 pages of law. Um, and the current lockdown regulations are over 120 pages of law um, across a number of different tiers, you know, masses of exceptions. And there's a, there's, there's a sort of laudable reason behind that, which is that the government have listened to lots and lots of people saying, well, you know, what about lonely people who can't see their, you know, partners? Okay, so we're going to have um, bubbles, um, you know, where support bubbles. What about childcare? You know, I, I need my my parents to come and look after my children. What what are you going to do about that? If 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 I can't have my parents, then then I can't go to work. Fine, we'll have childcare bubbles, um, and then you know, it, it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies um, until you have what what is now, which is you know, 
close to 100 exceptions, I think, if you sort of add them all together. And the police can't manage that. They can't, they can't absorb that. There's just no, no prospect at all. And it changes all the time. I mean, just during this lockdown, I'll give you an example. Started on the 6th of January and there was no exceptions for protest. Um, about a week later, they added an exception for picketing. So for some reason, maybe because trade unions got, you know, lobbied them, um, suddenly picketing was lawful, but protest um, wasn't expressly made lawful. And what are the police meant to do with that? You know, how, I, I actually think with protest, it's simple. There, there should be an exception for protest, end of story. Socially distanced protest, which is what there was before, should still be there. Um, but I think that there's a more general point of the police can't, they're, they're not public health officials, they're police. They're used to dealing with public order issues. They're just not cut out for making these fine-grained um, an, an analysis on the fly, you know, is this person um, visit, is, is, it, is, is what this person is doing reasonably necessary for their work? You know, imagine a police officer having to deal with that on the street, trying to figure out if someone's outside their home without a reasonable excuse or not. I just think it's unrealistic. It almost comes across as a Herculean effort to just keep up with the new guidelines that are produced by the government for both the public and law enforcement. Yeah, and I, I think that, that, that the, the fair pushback on what, what I say, which is that things have got too complicated, they change too often, and they're not being put before Parliament in an appropriate way, is, well, what would you do differently? Um, and, I, I, and I think it's, it is obviously easier to criticise than to be in the driving seat. But I think, first of all, it, it certainly would be possible to put this to some sort of parliamentary scrutiny, um, you know, even, even though these laws tend to have to come in quite quickly, you can easily have some sort of committee that is scrutinizing them and that has a formal role and can propose amendments. You can do that in a few days. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, a, a sort of all singing, all dancing parliamentary process where you have multiple readings and it happens over days or weeks. Um, and I think the second point is, in terms of the, the lockdown itself and use it the way that law has been used. Law has been used and we haven't even spoken about the difference between law and guidance. The UK government has, for some reason, decided that the guidance on the government website and posters and advertisements will be different to the law and usually stricter than the law. And that just creates massive confusion. Um, but it means that the law is, generally the law is being used as a kind of, you know, uber guidance. Um, you know, to, to regulate people's behaviour. In the most part, it's being used to say, to signal to people, this is serious and now we want you to stop, you know, doing this or start, you know, stop associating with people in your house, stop interacting with people outdoors, that sort of thing. Um, and there is a question of, well, well could you do it all by guidance? Um, and I think probably the answer is no, because you'll need some sort of, first of all, you need enforcement. The, the, the big measures, the big, the big, um, power that the government has is to shut businesses because once you shut businesses and, and also shut schools you are reducing down a huge amount of social interaction um in indoor social interaction which is the big problem with the big risk factor for covid the big, the big risk transmission vector as they call it um, so that's the big power you have so you need some sort of police power to be able to enforce that then you have big indoor gatherings, which are the other big risk. And they're, they're harder because a lot of big indoor gatherings are having, happening in private residences 
or in you know um like the 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 wedding that was in a private school in Stamford Hill quite recently with 150 people you know they're happening behind closed doors so how do you how can you possibly enforce that I think it's really difficult but you can have for example what we have at the moment which is if you a, a, a sort of mega fine mega fixed penalty notice of a £10,000 if you organise a gathering of over 30 people that seems you know it's it's really harsh but if you're going to focus on something with enforcement you should focus on the the things that really are the big risk is that do you need to then tell people that they can't be outside of their house without a reasonable excuse um i'm i'm really unsure that that is necessary um or desirable because i think it creates a real problem for enforcement i think it it leads to what we've seen in in england a lot which is the police saying oh we're going to you know, we caught some sledgers, um, people sledging the other day. We caught two people walking outside with a coffee and the coffee was a picnic and they can't have picnics. You know, it's, it's kind of absurd and uh, reducing confidence in the police, reducing trust in the government and most importantly, um, undermining the, the public messaging, which is that, which is basically presenting this ridiculous position that uh, two people outside having a coffee on a walk is somehow a risk, a, a big risk of COVID, so big a risk that the vital police resources will be wasted on it. So I think I'm really dubious actually now that this being outside without a reasonable excuse um, was is is a good idea in terms of a legal, um, in terms of a law. I think it creates this kind of exception bonanza when you're trying to be humane, but you end up making things too complicated. And it creates a huge amount of public confusion and people think well i'm allowed out for this or that and maybe i'm in a support bubble and this and that and the other and, and i just don't know whether that is the best way to go go about things and also i don't know whether it makes any difference at all to make it um a law it is really interesting to say the least to see how guidance as you say has been utilized to control behavior of both firms and individuals though at the moment it's rather ineffective given the overcomplication of guidelines, which solely serves to confuse the general public rather than properly control. However, in saying this, I am curious as to how human rights can be implemented within these guidelines. Through your Twitter, you've actually started a feed focusing on human rights in crises. Would you care to expand on this? I think human rights... Uh you know arise from an understanding of human nature um that when particularly when social life becomes dangerous for whatever reason maybe you've got a war or a uh, a depression or a um or a deadly pandemic that people behave in different ways than they do when things are peaceful and happy um, they tend to turn on turn on each other um if not um, directed in the right way they tend to turn on unpopular groups. They tend to protect their own. Um, they sort of close, society closes in and things can go really, really wrong. Um, the, the Human Rights Convention and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were created in the, uh, the aftermath of two world wars and the most deadly pandemic in, in probably potentially human history, the Spanish flu. Um, and, and they came along with a number of institutions such as the United Nations, the World Health Organization, which is very much a sort of foundational human rights approach to health. 
um, looking at health holistically, not just as, you know, have you got a disease, but, you know, what are your socio socioeconomic risk factors that will make you more exposed to a disease? Very, sounds very current now, but you just have to read their constitution. And I think that the, the as a result, the human rights framework is actually pretty well designed to guide us through the decision-making, the very difficult decision-making during these times. It's not to say that anything is, um, well, there are some things that are absolutely prohibited. So torture, um, taking in life intentionally, um, in, in, unless it's in a very sort of very limited range of reasons. Um, the slavery, those are prohibited absolutely, but other rights such as private life, family life, free expression, are and peaceful enjoyment of property, they are qualified, qualified rights. So they can be restricted during a major health crisis like this potentially but any restrictions have to be proportionate and i think that concept of proportionality is really um, useful as a tool for how you assess how you make decisions during this very difficult time you know have you considered these key rights the right to protest the right to freedom of religion the right to family life the right to education how are you making sure that the things you're doing are no more than ne is necessary to protect us protect the lives of the vulnerable people in our society who are subject who are subject to the additional risk factors of covid i think it's a very good it's a very good way of looking uh, it's a very good way of making decisions it's probably inherent it's probably how um, a lot of decisions are being made in liberal democracies anyway um, whether they think it's a human rights framework or not but it's um you know i i, I think having that's how i started my thread and i've written a number of articles and and done lots of videos and that sort of thing podcasts just about how to apply that human rights framework to the decision making and and i think i, I sort of stand by that point that it is a good way of dealing with these um, very difficult decisions thank you for expanding on that are there any examples from other liberal democracies that the UK can draw from in drafting a human rights response to the pandemic, which greater incorporates proportionality? That's really difficult um, because I haven't done a, a, a proper analysis of what other liberal democracies have been doing. Um, I've been trying to keep an eye on it and, and my sense is there has been a lot of the same problems in a lot of liberal democracies um, looking just across across the uh, the water to mainland Europe, you've seen very similar problems arising in France where they have a slightly different relationship with the police in Germany, um, in Spain, and they've had really serious outbreaks there. Um, I actually think, you know, contrary to, I, I know a lot of people are very critical of this government's response, but having followed the, the coronavirus regulations so carefully myself, I've seen a lot of, um, movement in terms of exceptions in terms of trying to allow for certain kinds of social activity i've, I've criticized the, the the issue with protests i think that is a criticism but generally speaking where there has been a problem with the regulations a perceived problem that there's been some sort of movement the next time the the, the problem with that is that it creates this you know ever-changing field of um of, uh, of, of restrictions and also it creates a sort of proliferation of exceptions which make them much more difficult to understand but on the other hand 
arguably there has been some uh, proportionality exercise applied there. Some people would say there has been too many restrictions over too long a period. I mean, we've been a sort of really have been in a state of, of lockdown or semi-lockdown since March. Um, and I don't know whether ultimately, I, I do wonder um, whether you can apply a sort of objective proportionality analysis. You, you can't just run it through a sort of algorithm and say whether it is or isn't proportionate. I think the, the questions of what effect you're going to have are so difficult. The question of collateral damage is so difficult. You know, what which measures are creating the effect that you need, which is reducing down the infection rates and the death rates, which measures are preventing the um, the collateral damage that you're trying to avoid, things like, you know, the, the, um, the we haven't talked about the furlough scheme, but, you know, financing people to be off work, basically, um, which I think is a massive, massively important. Um, and the fact that the government did it is probably, you know, we now just accept that that, that happened and that's been going on, but it's the most enormous investment in um, job protection, trillions of pounds, I think, that we've ever um, that we've ever made. So it, it is extraordinary. There's lots of things like that have happened and people just assume, well, you know, they bank for the fact that they've happened, but they needn't have happened. The government could have let jobs just disappear, people go into poverty, um, and, they, and, and, in, and in many senses they haven't. So I, I, I find it, it's, it's just a very difficult analysis to do and certainly to do with any level of objective you know, this is the answer. I, I think I, I think there will need to be a sort of proper public inquiry that deals with some of these questions um, and whether it will be able to reach um, solid answers. Um, I'm you know, still not 100% sure of. Thank you for that. I do hope some form of inquiry is carried out once lockdown has been lifted. I wanted to ask, though, how would we as the public play our part in scrutinising the current lockdown measures? I actually think the, the the people who have really dropped the ball on this is is parliamentarians. I think that the parliament has allowed itself to be sidelined, um, and I think that's a real failing. Actually, um, as as much as it's easy to blame the government, it's parliament that has allowed the government to use these emergency procedures. You know, they've approved every single set of the sixty six regulations, um, and they've kicked up a little fuss in the autumn, but not very much. And the government said, oh, well, we'll put this to Parliament when we can. And they kind of did it, did it a bit, but usually the day before, the day, you know, hours before they come into force, there's no re realistic means of um, feeding into the process. So I think, I actually think Parliament has dropped the ball. And I think if public wants to do something about it, they should connect, their, uh, connect with their local MP and, and complain about that. Thank you for clarifying that. Would you say that there are other protections available to us as the general public, other than the government's furlough scheme, for example, which could provide us with some form of protection for our rights. For example, the Human Rights Act 1998. I think the Human Rights Act has, has been pretty toothless during this crisis. Um, I think it's, we, we've, the, 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 there's been a quite obvious structural problem that um, the courts have just not been interested in dealing with the, in scrutinizing the regulations themselves. Um, you know, when there have been really important issues identified and, you know, there's been this 
absurd argument that the courts have really gone with, which is in the most part, this all academic. By the time you get to court, the, the, the regulations you're trying to challenge have been replaced and therefore there's no point looking at the issues. And that just, I just think is really wrong. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court by way of some sort of um, referral mechanism that uh, about insurance policies and whether they applied to COVID. The Supreme Court, you know, looked at this issue on a kind of advisory basis. And it's, I think it's absurd that there isn't an, a, a mechanism, a similar mechanism for human rights issues so that the courts can look at um, important human rights issues um, around the, the most restrictive legal measures ever. Um, I just think it's the courts have also dropped the ball. They've they've just sort of put their hands up, put their hands up, and said, "Well, it's not for us. Um, this is for Parliament." And Parliament has said, "It's not for us. It's for the government." So I think that is a real structural problem, and I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure what exactly to do about it. Um, the, there is a review of the Human Rights Act going on at the moment, um, but it's only going to make things worse, not better. How would you say it would be making it worse? Well, I mean, the government are, are doing a review of the Human Rights Act, but it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a joke. It's not a real review. They're just trying to, it's just whether their own criticisms of the Human Rights Act are accurate or not. Um, it's not whether the Human Rights Act is working as help people for the last 20 years um, should not be tampered with. It's, um, it's sort of ideological exercise. So I'm, I'm not convinced that it's going to improve anything and it'll probably make things worse. Sadly, though, that is all we have time for. I'd like to take a moment to thank Mr. Wagner for participating within our podcast this episode. Thank you very much for having me. This has been the Human Rights Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.